Enter the Ebony Tower Podcast, a resource, conversation, and community for and by brilliant yet underrecognized and underrepresented scholars of color. This episode is sponsored by Topcoat. Topcoat believes that bold nails are for bosses, so they created bold, beautiful shades that work for the classroom, the office, even the beach. Also, as an added plus, all Topcoat polish is carcinogen-free, vegan, and paraben-free. Topcoat is proud to be a woman-owned and black-owned business, so visit their site today at www.taupecoat.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Ebony Tower. This is Daphne. And this is Rachel. And today we have another installment of Tea from the Tower. In today's episode, we'll discuss the latest news, gossip, and events in academia. In addition, our question of the day will focus on the potential burden placed on academics of color as it relates to issues of diversity in higher education. But before we get started on that, I like to catch up with you, Rachel. What's your tea? Ah, uh, well, I am back on campus, getting ready for a spring semester, um, teaching a course on colorism. So I'm really, Ooh. yeah, I'm really excited to see how that goes. Um, I also, I don't know if I ever mentioned this before, but I co-produced a documentary. And it's premiering at Rotterdam Film Festival this week. So, Oh, my goodness. No, you did not. But I definitely, you know, we need to advertise that and put that out there. Yes, yes. I'll, I'll totally do that. So if anyone's curious to see what the film is about, um, it's called Sheshe La Vie, which means looking for life in Haitian Creole. Um, and it looks at the experience of two Haitian immigrants who ended up going from Brazil to Mexico and got stuck at the Tijuana border right before Trump's inauguration. Oh, that is so interesting. You know what? I have always been interested in being like a documentary filmmaker. There's actually a few graduate level like certificate programs that I thought about completing because I feel like documentary filmmaking and academic research can be a really strong tools to have together to educate the public on important issues. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, as an anthropologist, I feel like ethnography and film have this like long and deep and close relationship really ethnography, I think, in art, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think as an anthropologist, a lot of my anthro tools went into the production of this film. And so if anyone out there is curious and wants to see more, you can find more information at chechelavie.com. That's C-H-E-C-H-E-L-A-V-I.com. Okay. I'm going to be checking that out. Oh, Rachel, you are a Renaissance woman. (laughs) I try. I try. I dabble, you know. So tell me what's going on with you, Daphne. Oh, man. This dissertation, Rachel. Yeah. Tell me. It's kicking my butt. And I've also, you know, not surprising because it happens, you know, to everybody and you have to be prepared for this, but I have reached a roadblock. Um, So my dissertation was going to be a comparative uh, case study of two schools experiencing demographic change related to immigration. Well, after getting the runaround most of the fall from the second school, they finally told me that I could start in January and I was so excited. But then when I reached out to them in January, um, 
the principal was just kind of like, uh, I never committed to that. Not sure why anyone would tell you that. We're too busy, not interested. So I'm in the process of trying to figure out what my dissertation will be. Will I just focus on uh, this one school, which I have, you know, been there all year long. Like I'm really embedded in this setting, although it's a comparative case study. That's what I called it. I'm using ethnographic methods. Um, So I I feel like the school can stand alone, but I, I need to speak with my committee on like, what they want me to do. Cause that was definitely not what I originally proposed, uh, the single case study. I'm sorry, you know, field work and, and it just, it never goes smoothly for anyone. Just know that there's always hiccups. There's always issues. Timing is a problem. I remember like I knew people who had to go back into the field and do like another year's worth of data collection. I mean, you know, you hopefully knock on wood will not need to do that, but Yes, that's what I am trying to avoid because I had told myself, you know, I'm graduating on May 28th, 2020, you know, nothing but the Lord will stop me. Like, (laughs) yes, let's manifest it. (laughs) Yes. So we have to see uh, what my committee will be okay with. Um, You know, I feel like I I do want to do the second case study, but I feel like I could write that up as a postdoctoral application. So it's like, give me my uh, PhD and, you know, let me pursue a postdoc where I can add the second case study. I don't, I don't know. I think that's a smart, that's a strong like plan B, but you know, hopefully you figure out everything and get this resolved. Yes, that is, that is the goal. But you know, I'm not the only one experiencing hiccups related to research right now, especially related to factors outside of my control or outside of the researcher's control in regard to being able to complete research. So this kind of leads to our first kind of tea from the tower story. Uh, Rach, have you been looking at the shutdown stories hashtag? A little bit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was just thinking about this earlier, but what were you thinking about specifically in terms of shutdown stories? Well, specifically, I came across a story or multiple shutdown stories related to how uh, federally funded postdocs are not being paid because of the government shutdown. And not only are they not being paid, of course, their research is also shut down. I can't even imagine. I feel so triggered by that story being a postdoc. It's you're already quite insecure in your work capacity and where you are in terms of like your academic career, I can't imagine having to deal with not even just the financial aspects, which are big enough and serious enough. But I mean, like you just said, like one hiccup in your research can completely change your entire like projection and plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, because we don't know how long the shutdown will last, they don't know, you know, when they'll receive their next paycheck. And unfortunately, one thing I read is that for postdocs like the NASA postdoc, they got their last paycheck on the 17th. And because they are considered contractors, 
they will not receive back pay. That is just, that's just horrible. Wow. Yeah. So not only from a financial perspective, but also, you know, their lively research is their livelihoods. Like they need to produce something to even be able to move on to the the next phase, uh, whether that's securing a research job or that's securing a tenure track position. They need to produce things in the postdoc to be attractive for the next phase. So hopefully that's resolved soon. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I really hope so. And, you know, I am, as an anthropologist, I don't often think about what it means to do research, especially for people in the sciences, people who have labs. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean for your lab and the maintenance? Because I'm sure that is like daily requires daily money, time, effort. Um, support in order to keep a science lab going through a government mm-hmm. shutdown. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I've applied for multiple dissertation fellowships and, you know, I'm trying to, I need to look to see if they are funded uh, by the government and whether, you know, this cycle that I've applied for will be impacted by any budgets. Cause that would suck. That's what I was about to say is maybe that the one thing that I can take away from this other than like this sucks is, you know, in the future to really think about where the funding for research and postdocs and these things are coming from. Um, Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, usually government funding like NSF is considered to be such stable and good uh, financial grant funding agencies. But I mean, now we got to think about these things. Mm -hmm. It also makes me think about the recent, you know, status of science within government. I know over the last few years, there's been a lot of pushback against science. So not only are is the government pushing back against ideas, but now they they're messing with the, the purse. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Recently, I've been thinking about for a potential paper the relationship between researchers um, and nation state or governance, um, specifically in Brazil, because that's where I do my research. But this is giving me something else to kind of chew on and think about. So thanks for bringing that tea in. Okay. Well, yes, yes. Um, Do you have any stories to share? Yeah, I have a little bit more gossipy (laughs) tea. (laughs) So did you hear about that job market blunder that recently happened with Notre Dame? I don't know you, if you saw this story. I I saw it. I didn't go into it, but it, it made me afraid of uh, what's about to happen on the job market. You, want, mean, you want to explain listen, it to our listeners a bit? Yeah. Last year, I was on the job market, so this hit very close to home. So Notre Dame posted two um, job positions for visiting professors and they had in the subject line of the job listing their preferred candidates' names with the, the word preferred candidate. Oh, my God. You know what? I feel like we all probably in the back of our, our minds like felt that that's how search committees and hiring committees think about job searches, that they already know who they want. And, you know, posting the ad is just a technicality. But this is an example of like our, our greatest fears or suspicions come true. Yeah, you know, and I was reading the article, Higher Ed wrote an article about it saying that maybe this doesn't happen all the time, that jobs have a preferred candidate already in mind, but surely this happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, 
I just would want to know. I feel like as the candidate, like there's something more, I would feel more in control. I would be a little bit more okay with it if I knew I was coming in and like, that is the bar. Like, you know, your preferred Mm -hmm. candidate is the bar. So I have to either outshine that person or that person has to do something very bad in order for like me to get this position. But I don't know. You know what I mean? I feel like almost knowing at least rather than the denial that they Mm -hmm. already have a preferred candidate is like better somehow. So I know for a fact that it happens. I have two friends who shall not be named. One, they knew they wanted her. So they created the job posting. And when you, when I read it, it fit her to a T. Like it described exactly who she was. It described kind of the nature of her dissertation. Not, you know, not the specific topic, but, you know, in terms of the implications of her dissertation, like, right. You know, that's what they were looking for a scholar who could, you know, discuss those issues. And they posted it because it is uh, like required by law. But one tip that people can look out for in terms of trying to figure out whether a job posting already has somebody in mind, it was literally posted for the minimal amount of time that it could be posted, which I think is like two to three weeks. So maybe it has to be posted for three weeks. They'll post it on November 1st and all materials are due within that two to three week time frame. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for other people to apply for it. I kind of, you know, saw all that as like a, a tip that can clue you into whether the search already has someone in mind. Yeah, you know, I guess I'm hopeful in that even if a particular position is like slotted for someone who's within the department already or at that university already, that, you know, there is a chance that you never know what could happen potentially. I don't know. I'm trying to be the optimist about this. Okay, you you be the optimist. No, I'm just, I'm playing. No, it is. I did see a story where it's kind of like a guy commented and said that the job that he ultimately ended up getting, they did have a preferred candidate, but for whatever reason that fell through and he was hired. So it, it can happen. I saw that as an example. But that just means you have to come with your A game. Yeah. So how many people do you think were fired with this <laughs> with this blunder? <laughs> I can just imagine like who uh, had to pay for that mistake. You know, no in academia, it was probably someone with, you know, less power. It may not even have even been their complete mistake, but of course they're not gonna go for you know, the tenured, you know, committee person's head. So, I mean, but, you know, the only person who knows who the preferred candidate is the selection committee. Yes. yes. (laughs) I I don't know, Rage, but, you know, I'm like, let me get my life together for this job market. Yes. Because, like, I got to beat their preferred candidate, whoever that is. I'm sure you'll be fabulous and we'll talk about all of the prep things when you get a little bit like on the market, on the market and have jobs and interviews and all of that. Okay. Well, let me get a dissertation first. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Probably, probably a good idea. Okay. So I guess this next one is 
I don't know if I would call it gossipy, but is is definitely piping hot tea. So did you hear about, and this happened in December, so you probably have, about the controversy surrounding uh, Professor Mark Lamont Hill's Israel comments and how it raised a lot of questions about his status as a tenured faculty member at Temple. Yeah, I did. Uh, um, I definitely did see that story um, and had some conversations back in December about it. Um, yeah. yeah, what were your thoughts? When it comes to this topic, I think it, it, it could be a little bit scary for academics who might not realize that they're saying or doing something that might be offensive to other people, especially when at the very heart of what they're doing is what they consider social justice work. Like, I think it's one thing if someone's purposely trying to say like racist or inflammatory things, but when, you know, their comments are focused on like social justice, it's kind of scary that they could be punished for that. Because he was fired from CNN for sure. And I think tenure is saving him from being fired from Temple. But if he didn't, he could very well be out of a job if he didn't have tenure. Yeah. And, you know, I think that you can't talk about this story without talking about the charged discourse around Palestine and Israel and that political debate. This this story also makes me think of the Angela Davis um, mm. story about the Civil Rights Museum in Alabama that rescinded her human rights award that they were supposed to give to her. Mm-hmm. Um, basically saying that they had received pressure from the Jewish community to rescind that award. And, you know, I was this, this week, or maybe it was uh, last week, there were lots of articles about the women's march Mm -hmm. and the drama also surrounding some of what people perceived as being anti-Jewish sentiment within the women's march movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, the question or the meat of this issue is, is there space to be critical of Israel and supportive of Palestine without that being conflated with anti-Semitism? I agree. And I feel like these stories have like raised that question for me more because it's especially for people whose work or whose beliefs are really focused on freedom for all, you know, regardless of, you know, race religion, etc. It's I feel like it's a tough position to not be able to defend your beliefs. And I would say it scared me from even like wanting to like go into the like subject a lot because it's like if your your words or your activism can be misconstrued as being anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic, that's scary because you not only can you be fired, you can, you know, miss out on these lifetime achievement awards, you know, based on fighting for justice for all. This is scary. That's all I can say. Yeah, I agree. It is really scary. And I think it's worthwhile 
perhaps this is not the platform for it, but I, I would be very interested in a platform where someone could could debate and talk about this issue of whether anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism, because I find that there's a lot of confusion and conflating happening. And I think that the world would benefit from a conversation that kind of clears out some of this ideological terrain. I agree. That would be really awesome because I feel like there should be space for, you know, people's beliefs and activism, you know, for all people without it being anti another group. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but I feel like that's a lesson with and until we can like tease out, you know, this debate, you got to be careful out here. That, right. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's a kind of late to the game maneuver with Angela Davis um, because for so long she's been um, talking about Palestine for so long. Her social justice work has been oriented around Palestine and also mass incarceration. So it seems like pretty random in 2019 now Yeah, <laughs> to be like trying to rescind some of her legacy. It's like, she's been talking about this. Why is this a problem now? And actually, maybe that is the question. Maybe that's the interesting question that comes out of this. Why is this a problem now? Mm -hmm. Is it something to do with this particular political climate? I'm not sure, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can somebody please host that debate or that forum so that we can get a little bit more understanding and so that people who are oriented towards social justice, you know, can do things in a way that, you know, people don't find offensive, but they can still stick with with their beliefs. Because I will say for uh, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, one thing that they really focused on in was one particular quote. And I think it was like mm-hmm. from the, you know, ocean to the sea or something like that. I, I don't I don't know the phrase, but, you know, that was kind of what they honed in on. So, like, if there can be some type of discussion on, like, how can you fight for a you know group of people that you feel strongly about? And it not be, you know, misinterpreted as something else. Like what's the, you know, vocabulary, what's the language around that? So. Yes. Okay. So speaking of questions, um, now that we've sipped a little tea, I want to move to our question of the day around issues of diversity in higher education. So on a podcast, a professor named Patricia Matthews, who is at Montclair State University, talked about issues that faculty members of color face in relation to university diversity and race problems and the burden that faculty members of color bear in addressing university issues. And, you know, to uh, quote her, she said, after Michael Brown and Ferguson, you wanted to be the faculty member that could help organize community conversations. Those are hard and exhausting, and they're not the same as being on the faculty award committee. There's an idea that we have about what a professor and a scholar does, and it's work that is separate from the work of the community. The thing that matters most, the gold standard, is still peer review research. It's not your job to fix the institution's problems about race. These problems existed before you got there, and many of your white colleagues will let you spin your wheels trying to fix it. And then you won't get tenure. Your job is to get tenure. 
So I kind of want to talk about that quote a little bit. Like, what role should faculty members of color play in addressing issues in higher education related to diversity and race? And I guess, what is the university's role in addressing these issues? Huh, well, so I think that from the perspective of the um, institutions, the answer to your question is they need to give more weight to the work of faculty of color that are doing this. And it is community work, right? It's funny that quote that you mentioned, she talks about helping to organize a community conversation concerning something like Ferguson, right? But not being considered like service work or community work while when it's essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's something that has to happen at the institutional end and, probably administratively. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from the faculty end, our role is very dependent on where we are. I agree with that line in that quote that your job is to get tenure. Your job is to get tenure before you have tenure. Once you have done tenure, your job might be a little bit different. Depending on where you are in your career, it feels like you have different access to change things through different mediums and at different levels. As a junior scholar right now, I feel like a lot of the change that I can make in terms of diversity is through supporting students of color. And I mean, in part, that's because I'm at a small liberal arts college. So my relationship with my students of color in the classroom and also like through office hours and mentorship, all of that is privileged here. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you get to the point, or I imagine I should speak for myself, once I get to the point where I am tenured, I think then I perhaps have more space to be on more of the decision-making committees that can impact kind of structurally how diversity is happening. And I don't just mean bringing students of color into the university. I'm talking about supporting them. I'm talking about funding them. I'm talking about retaining them. Mm-hmm. All of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's, uh, interesting, you know, you talked about faculty members of color supporting students of color and talking about the difference in the the types of universities and how that might be valued at some. There was an Atlantic article back in 2015 that kind of talked about the the mentorship, the support and etc. that faculty members of color provide to, you know, not only their own students, but the random student of color that they don't know, but the student might see them as a familiar face or as a warm face. And they talked about that as invisible labor. And I think it's interesting. I can't talk about it from like a faculty member perspective, but there is also a lot of invisible labor that graduate students do with supporting other graduate students of color because institutions don't have systems in place to to provide that support. So, you know, I think about my first three years in, in graduate school and, you know, serving as the president of, you know, a student organization that focused on like the academic and social well-being of, you know, underrepresented uh, students on campus. And I served as the chair of a student of color conference. And, you know, I was doing all of these things. And, you know, when I, you know, started to look at my CV, 
I realized that the work I had spent on those committees trying to make the environment more open and welcoming to people who look like me. And of course, I needed those resources as well. But that was time that was not spent getting those articles um, in peer reviewed journals, which can help me on the job market more than you know, serving as the president of a graduate student organization. Yeah, I really think it's a tricky balance. And personally, as much invisible labor as I am putting in, and I am putting it in here um, with trying to be supportive of my students who often, like you said, come by and confide in me because probably I look like someone they don't usually see on campus and someone who will understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, While that is an invisible labor, it is also something that I find quite fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's linked to the part of the reason why I decided to be a professor. It's just the unfortunate burden. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say burden. Mm -hmm. It's just the unfortunate circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I also think that each person has to decide what, how much time they can and cannot give. So for example, last semester being my first semester here teaching as a postdoc and doing this invisible labor for many students, I realized I need to be very uh, conscious of how much time I give to my students. And so like office hours being not just a suggestion, but like those are hard hours became a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I might close my door and close the lights and pretend I'm not in this office because that's my writing time. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I would never be comfortable with giving the advice that like, all you have to worry about is yourself and getting tenure because I don't see it that way. I see the invisible labor as being labor, but also being as something that reconstitutes me as a woman of color in academia to be able to be a support to other young women who might stay in academia or go elsewhere, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What you just said actually reminds me of what Dr. Carrie Ann Rockamore talked about in our conversation about setting priorities and allocating the time that you need to reach those goals and if, if you do that efficiently and effectively, you know, it can give you more space and time to do the things that you might find more fulfilling than writing up peer review articles, which, you know, a lot of people find that fulfilling. But, you know, sometimes it's the, the people element that they find more appealing. Yeah. And, you know, it just reminded me, too, at a Ph.D. Um, candidate level. I remember maybe I was in my third year or second or third year in my program. Um, and the new cohort came in and one of the people in the new cohort was quite interested in social activism and activism in terms of like graduate student issues and sort of came in, hit the ground running and had a lot of sort of like, why aren't you guys doing this? Why haven't you organized this? And I remember at year five talking to that person again and then being like, I came in looking around like, why aren't people doing this? Why aren't people doing that? And then I realized, damn, I'm late to like submit the applications for my field work. I'm Mm -hmm. late to submit the, do the comp exams. I'm late to like get my bib in. I'm late to do this because it's so hard to balance that kind of work, the fixing the institution work along with 
everything that it entails and that you have to submit in order to complete your PhD. Mm -hmm. That was me. After my third year, I did a little bit of evaluation and I was like, I have my hands in too many things while I'm trying to complete all of these milestones. And I kind of stepped back and I said, you know, there's one organization that I'm going to be dedicated to. And, you know, the rest of my time will be focused on academic work. And now that I'm off campus and I'm collecting data and, you know, I'm going to start writing my dissertation, I see the Ebony Tower as my way of continuing that service while also focusing most of my time on getting the, the PhD. Because how can I advise anybody else? And I, you know, haven't reached my end goal. So it's just kind like I can't do too much Ebony Tower if I if I never get the PhD. <laughs> yes. And I mean, you know, I think the Ebony Tower and also like the documentary, when you're in a particular mindset where you care about issues of social justice, where you care about issues like diversity, you end up bringing that into various projects that may be within the institution of higher education mm-hmm. or within academia, but often also can be outside of academia. And I think all of those things are viable. And if I could create my own magical world, the the universities and colleges would recognize all of this labor Mm -hmm. in our tenure reviews Mm -hmm. and not the narrow confines of peer-reviewed journals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would also say universities will understand the burden that they're placing on both faculty members and their graduate students, you know, who they want to graduate, and that the university should pick up the mantle and really do a little bit more to create the supports for for students so that they don't have to burden each other. Or, like you said, not burden, but they, they don't feel like they have to take on so much. It's not that they don't want to, but it's kind of like not feeling like they have to take on so much because if they don't, no one else will. I totally agree. Okay. Well, you know, I I don't know if you have anything else to add, but I thought this was a, a good conversation, a little bit of tea and a little bit of discussion about issues in higher education that hopefully can be addressed. Yeah, I thought we had a great conversation today and I would really love to hear from our listeners about the question of the day. Should academics of colors try to fix their university's diversity or race problems? You can always tweet us at the Ebony Tower underscore or leave us comments under our Instagram that's at the Ebony Tower. We'd love to hear back from you on any of these topics. Mm-hmm. Keep the conversation going, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we will also have, you know, future discussions on our Tea from the Tower episodes about issues in higher education. We want to have these conversations and we want you to be a part of them. So if you have any suggestions about topics or issues that you'd like for us to discuss, or if you are an expert on a topic and would like to come on and discuss it with us as a part of our topic or question of the day, please please feel free to reach out to us. You can email us at Daphne at the Ebony Rachel at the Ebony or info at the Ebony We answer them all and we definitely look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode and see you next time. If you're interested in being featured on the Ebony Tower, have topic ideas or simply want to ask Ebony anything, visit our website www.theebonytower.com or email us at info at theebonytower.com 
Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Ebony Tower. And please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.